I don't know how often you listen to the news. I listen to the news probably a little too often. It's aggravating, frustrating, depressing, fill in the blank. It's usually not very happy or positive. And this morning, some of what we're going to talk about fits into that category. We're in Genesis. We'll be in Genesis 2. We'll be talking about uh, issues surrounding uh, gender and identity. You know, not too long ago, it was towards the end of uh, 2016, that the feature article and on the cover of Time magazine was a story uh, entitled, My Brother's Pregnancy and the Making of a New American Family. It told, it told the story of Evan, who was born a biological female. But by the time she was a teenager, she decided that she was actually more of a man than a woman. And at age 19, she started the process of transitioning from woman, from female to male. Except in that transition, starting at age 19, she never gave up this inner desire to have a child, which she did at age 35 as a self-identified male. You know, these stories are being heard of uh, more often. And beyond that, they've started to become celebrated in our society. We have become a culture of not only he's and she's and they and them's, but these and zers. The New York City Commission on Human Rights has been continually adding language surrounding gender so that now it contains more than 30 different self-identifying terms when it comes to gender identity. Now, if it was my preference, this would not be what I'm talking about this morning. I would gladly push this aside and say, it's not an issue, and just pretend it doesn't exist. The problem is we can't do that. It's simply not possible Because not only have these issues become prevalent in our culture, they have increasingly become a topic of conversation happening within churches and denominations. There is not a denomination that has not had churches within it give way to some of these cultural norms and language. So the question for us becomes... How do I respond? How does the Christian respond to issues of gender and identity in our culture today? How should the church respond to a culture that is seemingly more and more in contradiction with God's Word, or maybe we've got it wrong all along? And now it's important that we don't just stand on our own little soapbox and pronounce condemnation on anyone who doesn't believe exactly the way that we do. But it is equally and crucially important 
that we understand what we believe based on the Bible and then stand firm on that truth. So with that in mind, we're going to turn our focus to the holy, inspired Word of God. And I hope that you're not just trusting me, that this morning we're trusting the Word of God to give us the answers we need as we approach a topic like this. So will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray in these few moments that we have here together that You would inform our minds through the Holy Spirit, that You would let Your words come through, Your thoughts come true, and Your truth to be proclaimed clearly and boldly this morning. We pray in Your name. Amen. So the plan for this morning is to just walk through the few verses of our text this morning to give us kind of the overall story and picture of the passage. And then after we walk through the passage, I'm going to just give us three simple guiding principles that I think will help ground us in our practical understanding of gender and identity. We'll be in Genesis 2, 18 through 23. So you may want to turn there. We'll be there in just a moment. So up to this point, we've seen the general creation story in Genesis 1. We got the big picture of creation. And then beginning last week, we've started to focus in specifically on the more detailed account of the creation of man in Genesis 2. And if you look back in Genesis 1, or you might remember, there was a frequent phrase that marked the days of creation. It was this, and God saw that it was good. But today, our text begins with a problem. The first part of Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So I just want to pause there and fill in some context quickly. We've arrived somewhere in the middle or towards the beginning maybe of day six. God has formed the light and the dark, the sea and the sky, the land and the plants. He has filled the sky with the sun and the moon and the stars. He has filled the sea with fish and the sky with birds. And He's filled the land with animals and Adam. Just Adam, not humans. And it's at this moment in His creative work, That God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And you might ask, well, if it wasn't good that man should be alone, then why didn't he do what he did with the rest of creation? Why didn't he just populate the earth with a bunch of humans and then he wouldn't be alone? Why did he do it differently with man? And I think it's an important aspect of what it means to be human, to understand why God did this. And why we have this specific account in Genesis 2. One of the central reasons that humans are distinct from the rest of creation is that we are created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, 
Now we have the distinct privilege of being able to communicate and fellowship with our Creator. No other aspect of creation has this kind of fellowship or communication with God. So what we see happening here is that the all-powerful, infinite, sovereign God doesn't just put all humans out there, He puts one human out there. And He knows it's a temporary problem. It's not good that He's alone. But He wants to invite the man into the process and give the man an understanding of why God is doing what He is doing. He's inviting man into His creation. He's allowing him to see and to touch, to feel, to experience the reasons behind His creation. And since no other creature gets this privilege, we as humans should do our best to understand and live out this plan and design. Verse 18 continues, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God knows the solution. He knows what He's going to do. He's going to make him a helper. But He allows Adam to experience being alone. He allows Adam to feel this Situation of not good. And so what happens next? Verse 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper for him. This was not a surprise to God. This was God's plan. God puts on this show for Adam. He says, Adam, stand there. I'm going to bring you the animals. And as the animals come to you, it's your job as human, as man, as Adam, to name the animals. And this tells us a few things that I, I wish we had some more time to talk about, but it's really outside the scope of our topic for this morning. But just a few things, Adam was immediately capable of intelligent and complex thought. He was created with everything that he needed to execute God's plan. He could immediately talk, walk, and converse with God. It also tells me that God was present with Adam From the beginning. This is not a God who is just out there. Yes, God is transcendent. He is outside of us, above us. But He is also imminent. That means He is with us. It tells me that from the beginning, man was not a robot. God delegated this authority to Adam as caretaker and name giver of creation. You might read this and ask the question, at least I did, could Adam actually have named all the animals on the earth? Um, No. (gasps) It says it. Okay, yes, but no. It doesn't say that Adam named all the animals on the earth. If you go back and read the text carefully, it says the livestock, the birds, and the beasts of the field, which 
takes out about 80% of animals. And again, the Lord brought the animals to him. He's capable of intelligent and complex thought. He can go through and he says, um, hey, that's an elephant. Why would you call it an elephant? Because it looks like an elephant. He just knew. That's not the point of this morning. There's actually a fair amount of research and explanations out there if you want to look it up that not only was it extremely likely that Adam could actually name all the animals that were brought to him, it would not take most of the day. It may take half the day and more likely a few hours. It was a long task. I would imagine he got a little tired of it by the end, but it was completely possible. And so why I believe it, while I believe it's important that we do believe what it literally says, that Adam named all the animals, maybe more importantly, what we need to understand is God's purpose in bringing and putting on this show. And the first one we've already said, that naming the animals was a sign of Adam's dominion, his authority. It was part of his command to subdue and tend to creation but also in presenting the animals to Adam, here's what I think is remarkable. God was allowing Adam to know, to understand, and to long for God's design. He wanted Adam to feel his need before God just gave him the answer. And I can imagine as the animals are brought to Adam, he's a pretty smart guy, that he's like, oh, there's an elephant and a lion and a zebra, and there's more than one of them, and they all seem to have a companion. Where's mine? Is it going to be the next one? Is it going to be the next one? And he starts to anticipate his companion. But the problem is, the animals stop coming. His job is done. And then we look at the end of these verses and it says, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's a longing, a languish that God created and gave to Adam so that he would desire the good and perfect design that was coming. And so it's at this moment, as God has revealed His design to Adam, that then God moves to provide a companion for him. The solution to the problem that now Adam intimately understands. And so we continue on in the passage. Verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Here, God does what he always purposed to do. He puts the man to sleep. He takes a rib out of his side. He forms the woman. And then he brings the woman to the man. And we see his response in verse 23. Then the man said, this is at last. This at last is an exclamation of joy. At last, I found her. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. He finally finds that companion that was missing, the one that is suitable for him, the one that fit him. He was no longer alone in the world, but had someone to experience life with, to enjoy creation with, and to walk alongside him as they served and fellowshiped with the Lord. That's our text for this morning. So what I want to do now is give us three guiding principles that I believe will help us understand where gender comes into play. The first is simple, this. We must recognize two distinct genders. Two genders are first introduced, not here in Genesis 2, but back in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. That word man in his own image can be translated humanity. It speaks of both men and women. So God created men and women, humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created humanity. But now we have new words. Male and female, he created them. Here's the first institution of gender found in Genesis 1. And then in our text this morning, Genesis 2.18, we see there's a distinction again in gender because the helper is going to be made to be fit. This word means like opposite, complement. Think of a puzzle piece. One fits into the other. They are like opposites. And what that tells us is that God specifically created, created two and only two genders designed specifically to fit together. It's made pretty apparent in biology. On a, on a genetic level, men hold XY chromosomes and women XX. That's a genetic truth. I am not a scientist, but even anyone, any scientist will say, your genes, your chromosomes, they're indisputable and they are unchangeable. And what it tells us is that by design, God has made the bodies of men and women distinct. Our brains are different. Our body shapes are different. Our voices, our strengths, our reproductive systems, they're all different as well as correspond to deeper truths about who we are. And not only was gender, is gender a bio, biological fact, there's also a purpose in two distinct genders. That purpose is found again in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. I don't think you should have to think too hard to figure out that this is what it means to be fit together. That when a man and a woman come together, the intention is that they would be fruitful and multiply. It also shouldn't take that much thinking to understand that this can only happen 
when a man and a woman come together. This does not work between two men. This does not work between two women. They cannot fulfill this command to humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Does that mean this applies to everybody? What about the barren? What about the single? It means that God designed men and women to function together in this way. And so we hold to that basic truth. If we begin to deny the fundamental design and function of gender, that there are two genders which are distinct, male and female, what we start to then do is question the very authority and design of God. And what we know about God and what we know about us is this. I don't get to decide. God does by nature of being God. And so what that means is I do not have the authority to renegotiate my gender. What it means is society does not get to define or redefine what it means to be a man or a woman. God has set out His design beginning with creation. So we must recognize two distinct genders. But gender goes beyond physical sex characteristics. It also speaks to the whole person. And what the Bible teaches is that God has a distinct purpose in designing men and women and that those roles are intentional. And they are part of who we are in our being. Which brings us to our next guiding principle. Not only must we realize that or recognize two distinct genders, we must also recognize that men and women were given distinct roles. Now, before we talk about roles, we should go back to Genesis 1 just to make something abundantly clear. I've already mentioned it a little bit here this morning. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man, humanity, men and women, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity, men and women, in His own image. The image. In the image of God, He created Him, men and women. Male and female, He created them. So before we talk about roles, we need to make something abundantly clear. Both men and women have been created in the image of God. Both men and women are equal in their value and worth because they are image bearers. Both men and women have been given dominion over the creatures on the earth. Both men and women are required to be together to fulfill the command found in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and to multiply. We must keep in mind that men and women are equal in their ontology. It means their being, their essence, their nature. Because they are image bearers. It tells us on a side note in a little different topic, this is also why every life matters. Starting at conception, they are a person and an image bearer. 
That being said, keeping the equality of men and women in view in terms of standing before God and image-bearing, we must also affirm that men and women are given distinct roles. The text makes it clear the easiest way to understand is there a difference in roles between men and women. This is not an issue of equality before God. It's an issue in function. And the easiest way to see that there's different functions is just by looking at the text and understand that God has called men to headship, specifically over their wives and in the church. So if we can make the case for headship for, with Adam and man, it answers the question, is there a distinction between roles? There's probably more, but I have six reasons that we ought to hold to the headship of man. Just right here from Genesis 1 through 3. Order matters. The order of creation speaks to man's headship. He was created first. That comes in play that we know that is important because in a minute I'm going to tell you about some New Testament passages that make it abundantly clear that order matters. Man was created first, before the woman. Again, before the woman, responsibility was given to the man. Everything that we talked about last week. Adam, he carries the name, he's the representative of all humankind. He was given the instructions about working the garden. He was given the instructions not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before there was a woman, the authority, the responsibility was given to Adam. The naming of the woman. Not only did Adam name the animals as a sign of his authority, but he also named the woman. He does it here in our passage in Genesis 2, and he does it again after the fall of man in Genesis 3. You have the giving of a helper. The fact that God brings the woman to the man as a helper implies that he is the leader. Implies that he carries the responsibility. And he needs a helper to complete where he is lacking. The responsibility to leave and cleave in Genesis 1.28 is given to the man. It says, therefore, this is why man will leave his father and mother and cleave, cling to his wife. And then the order of accountability. Outside of our text this morning, but still within Genesis 1-3, through 3, at the fall of man, God calls for Adam in the garden after the sin. Who sinned for, first in order? It would be Eve. But He calls for Adam. Not only does He call for Adam... When he speaks, he addresses Adam, and Adam is the one who responds to God. He is the spokesman of the family. Now, he didn't do a good job taking responsibility, but that's another issue. You put all these things together, and you're like, there are six reasons right there in Genesis 1-3 through that seems to say, I would say that does say, that Adam has a distinct role of head of his wife. Man has a distinct role of headship 
over woman. But then it's made even more abundantly clear when you look at the teaching of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about men leading the church. And the reason why Paul says men are called to lead the church is because Adam is the head of his wife. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul talks again about the man having headship over his wife because he was created first. In Ephesians 5, talking about marriage, Paul says the man is the head. Not should be, not should strive to be, but is. We'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. That he is the head. And then in Romans 5, Paul indicates that it was Adam's sin that plunged the entire human race into sin and death. It's clear that responsibility rests in the man. It's fleshed out most intimately in the relationship of marriage. It it has implications in how we lead our church. And I would also say it has implications in our daily lives. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be addressing the home. We're going to be addressing marriage. And we'll talk more about what the roles look like. Where does it leave the woman? We could talk a whole lot more about that. But the point this morning is to say that there's a difference. There's a distinction between roles. When you go back to Genesis 2.18, what is the role of a woman? She is to be a helper fit for him. She is to be a partner to the man. She is to complete him where he is lacking. They are to be partners together as they both serve and worship the Lord. She is to be treasured, loved, protected, and honored. This is not an issue of equality. This is not an issue of the superiority of man or the inferiority of woman. It's an issue of function as we live our lives by the design of God and His Word. So this morning, it will have to rest at that. And we'll simply state that God has distinguished separate roles for men and women. And that those roles are lived out, not only as we live as a man or a woman, but as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. As we lead and guide our families, as we interact with our neighbors and coworkers and friends. Which leads us to our last guiding principle this morning. Culture cannot dictate our core convictions. I have three truths under this heading and on the screen, but that build upon one another. The first is this. Conviction stands on truth that does not change. And the only truth that does not change is His Word. Have my convictions deepened over time, even changed over time? Yes, they have. But what is the basis for those convictions? The Word of God, which is inspired and unchanging. We start with what the Bible says. The Bible is the only standard by which we should form our convictions. 
So conviction stands on truth that doesn't change. Don't take my word for it. Dig into the word. Number two, conviction does not negate compassion. Because you might not struggle in this area. Because maybe you're like me and it seems pretty easy to say a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. That does not mean that you are somehow inherently superior. Whenever we talk about any sin issue, whether it be in this category or another, we must remember that we are no more deserving of the gospel than anyone else. And so what that means is that especially when we approach difficult or controversial subjects, that we must approach them with humility and grace. Because our culture has become so accepting to these ideas that are anti-creation and anti-God, it has empowered more people to live in darkness. Which means that there are people who are legitimately struggling with these concepts of gender and identity and sexuality. How do we respond to them? We should not respond to them by pushing them aside. We should not respond to them with mocking. We should not respond to them with dismissal or repulsion, but compassion. And you need to hear this carefully. Not dismissing the reality of their feelings is not the same as affirming those feelings. We need to remember that in most cases, we are talking about lost people or people who are blind to the truth. And so that means our response is to see them as image bearers first, who are struggling. And so, we speak with grace and compassion. We are talking about people who have been created with a distinct purpose and who God loves. And the Gospel is available to all, even those who are struggling with something that we may think is simple as gender identity or living out their role as God intended. There are broken people that, yes, need to hear the truth, but need to experience it in an environment of grace. There are some people that certainly err too far and just want to affirm everyone, and that's not what we're advocating for. We cannot compromise on truth because if we do, we compromise the gospel. And we can't compromise the gospel because it's that very gospel that is the only thing that offers true freedom to someone who is lost and blind and struggling. What people need to hear and see is the freedom that only Christ gives. But they won't hear that 
through condescension, through hate. There are people who are lost. We should expect lost people to do lost things. We need to identify with their brokenness and present to them the truth and the freedom that only comes through Jesus Christ. And lastly, conviction stands on truth that does not change. Conviction does not negate compassion. And number three, convictions only matter if they are lived out consistently. We not only need to preach truth, we need to show the world the value and the beauty of God's design. We need to show them that the truth is worth having. That what I have as I follow God's design and role for me is what gives me joy, what gives me freedom and purpose. And that it's the best way to live as it aligns with God's truth. I need to live, and I would say you need to live, in a way that reveals biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. I need to exemplify what it looks like to be a godly husband that is worth following. My wife needs to exemplify what it looks like to model and live as a godly woman and wife. Why? It's the best way to live. And beyond that is what draws the world to see the Gospel as a beautiful picture of truth. This is why in Ephesians 5, which I'm sure we'll look at in a couple weeks, says that marriage is to be a picture of the Gospel of Christ. So that means I need to teach my sons and my daughters what it means to be a man. That we have no room to mistreat women. That we have no room to act like somehow I'm superior than anyone. I need to tell and teach my daughter the value of femininity. The value of being a godly woman. I need to uphold my wife like Peter calls me to. Honor her as the weaker vessel. So that no one can come and accuse me of oppressing my wife. I've taken advantage of my wife. Taken advantage of any woman. That people would look at our marriage and say, I need that. That's different. What's different? Jesus. The Gospel. Understanding my role as a man and a husband. And her role as a wife and a woman. This is fleshed out in every human relationship. Whether or not you're single or married, whether or not you're a parent or not, whether you're a teenager or a child, figuring out what it means to be a man and woman in light of God is important and relevant to all of us. And the last thing I would say here is, is that my ultimate calling is, is really not to figure out or to answer the question, what does it mean to be a man or even a, a godly man? My ultimate calling is found 
in living for Christ. So I'm going to figure out what it looks like to be a man who lives for Christ. And the ultimate question is not, what gender am I? The question is, who am I? And Genesis answers that question for each and every person. They're an image bearer of God. They are loved. They have roles. They have genders. They're image bearers. They're loved. That's the message that we not only need to teach and preach from our pulpits. That's the message we need to live out in our daily lives that people will see the beauty of God's design. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I don't know who's struggling with what here this morning or who knows people and, and what they're struggling with. But I'm thankful for the freedom and the power that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that you don't call us to be perfect. You call us to be broken. I pray that you give us compassion and humility for those who are struggling that you would give us grace as we speak the truth, as we understand the value, the inherent worth of everyone, even the lost and the broken. I pray that you would help us know the truth, that we would dive into your word, that you would reveal your truth to us, and that it would so impact us that people couldn't help but see Jesus in the way that we live our lives and treat one another. We pray these things in your name. Amen.